I'm Chris Brown and welcome to episode 35 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Amazon is one of the most powerful corporations on the planet. Now with a net worth in excess of $200 billion, its CEO, Jeff Bezos, has become the richest person in history and one of the few people to profit from the global pandemic. Amazon's dominance is so profound that it has reshaped the global economy itself. We now live in the age of Amazon capitalism. Servicing the expansion of its e-commerce empire, Amazon has in turn become one of the world's largest logistics companies as well, and its highly profitable Amazon Web Services, or AWS, now accounts for more than half the world's public cloud infrastructure market. Our conversation today covers some of the corporation's uniquely troubling facets, including automation, surveillance, and the disruption of local democracy. We also look at Amazon workers' resistance and organising over issues such as pay and working conditions and developing networks of international solidarity. Joining me on the panel are Jake Ali Mohammed Wilson, Professor of Sociology at California State University, Long Beach. Jake is the co-editor of Choke Points, Logistics Workers Disrupting the Global Supply Chain, as well as the new book, The Cost of Free Shipping, Amazon in the Global Economy, which is out now from Pluto Press. We're also joined by Ellen Rees, Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Riverside, and she's also co-editor of The Cost of Free Shipping. Also joining us are Nantina Vergonzas, a labour activist and postdoctoral researcher at the AI Now Institute in New York University. Nantina's research explores the global renewal of the labour movement amid growing crises of public health, climate change and authoritarian assent. And finally, we're joined by Christian Zamaron, a member of Amazonians United in Chicago. Amazonians United is an autonomous, worker-based movement fighting for workers' rights, better conditions, and the democratisation of their workplaces. Now, before we get underway, as ever, listeners of Radicals and Conversation get a special discount via Plutobooks.com. Just use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout to get 50% off the new book, The Cost of Free Shipping. And lastly, the time has come for me to give a shout-out to the latest group of our Patreon patrons, who've continued to show their support and solidarity over the last few months. They are Catelyn Baker, Miriam Yagud, Isadora Heltzer, Doncha, Rich Jones, Nabila Talib, Bill McCafferty, Simon Bailey, Danny Moo, T. Min, Prashanti Pathak, Ben Robinson, A.W., Ray, Stanley Wolokau-Wanambwa, Matthew Yates, Matthew Thompson, Paul Mackney, Ariana Lewis, Joseph Tuck, Michael G. Dixon, Nico, Clearing Rubble, Elizabeth Latham, Sarawa Mohamed Gulam, Marcello Burgos Santos, Karis, Sam, James Richards, Megan Curran, Noah Tichi, Emily Spellman, Alex B, Kevin Fahi, Sebastian Moitzheim, Josh Price, Matt Kemper, Yanni Rahman, Matthew Fuller, Dan Swain, Victor Osprey, Hannah Rose, Katie, Jared Marnin, Rowan Eldwin, Michael Diaz, Sean, Gretel, Sean Gray, and Camilla Fitzsimons. So a big thank you again to all of the above. If you're not already a member, then do check it out. The link is patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press. Membership begins from just £3 per month, 
and benefits include free ebooks, discounts on our website on both print and ebooks, access to exclusive online content, including the unabridged version of this podcast, screen printed merchandise, and much more besides. And now back to today's discussion with Jake Ella Mohammed Wilson, Ellen Reese, Christian Zamoron, and Antina Vagonsas. Right, well, firstly, let me say thank you all very much for joining us today. Uh, it's great to have you all on Radicals in Conversation. And Jake, welcome back to the show. Long-time listeners may recall a very excellent discussion that Jake was part of a couple of years ago, along with Kim Moody and Katie fox Hoddis about logistics workers in the global supply chain. But we're here today to talk about Amazon, the most valuable corporation in the world, a trillion-dollar business. In 2018, it captured nearly 50% of all online sales, and its market share continues to increase. Uh, in the US and the Europe especially, it's ubiquitous, it's hegemonic, and it's completely redefined customer expectations. But as Jake and Ellen have put it, uh, Amazon's famous free shipping is actually not free at all, and it creates enormous costs for workers and communities alike, and particularly for communities of color. So there's a lot to talk about. I imagine we won't cover all of it today, but perhaps we can start by just looking at that phrase uh, that's in the book, Amazon capitalism, uh, which is really kind of the heart of the analysis. So the company's become so powerful and influential that it represents you know, a shift in global political economy. So I wanted to ask what's distinctive about Amazon capitalism? What are its key features, some of the major changes that it's brought about? This is Jake. Um, so one of the things that you know we are interested in looking at was the meteoric rise of of this corporation of Amazon and how it's impacted the global economy, how it's impacted and disrupted local economies, and how that's impacted workers and communities. So some of the things that we identify as Amazon capitalism has been this increasing concentration of corporate power at various scales and how e-commerce and Amazon's kind of domination of the e-commerce market and supply chain, how that's changed the nature of work. And so we've seen a, a further deepening of technologies of uh, surveillance and the digital monitoring of workers. We have implications for uh, automation um, in, in work um, and also the attacks on unions. Um, Ellen, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Amazon capitalism, it sort of brings together many of the trends in global capitalism, but in certain distinct ways. And I think, you know, it's been heavily promoting sort of one-click consumerism along with what Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. It's not distinct to Amazon, but Amazon has certainly been a big player in it, which is, you know, surveilling workers as well as consumers, right? And, you know, it brings it together along with, you know, corporate welfare also, you know, taking advantage of the multiple intersecting inequalities in our global economy, especially around gender, around race, around uh, immigrant status, right? And again, these aren't distinct to Amazon, but Amazon sort of brings it together in a particular way. It has been heavily promoting, you know, both the one-click consumerism and the surveillance capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about surveillance already, because I guess that's something you can split into at least two strands, surveillance of consumers, as you say, surveillance of workers, both being particularly problematic. I imagine we'll talk about the latter, uh, particularly uh, as the conversation goes on. Before we get into some of that, I was going to ask, in what ways does Amazon surveillance technology 
interact with that of the state as well? Because I know in the book you mention, you know, Amazon's kind of connections with the Pentagon, uh, the CIA, ICE as well. Could you say a little bit more about some of these connections as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think the surveillance technology um, is being deployed by police departments, immigration offices, right? So it's being used to surveil protesters, right? Dissenters, right? Immigrants as well. Um, People of color are especially vulnerable to this, right? So I'm glad you, you brought up that. And I think the state is sort of intimately connected with the rise and growth of Amazon capitalism, right? It's uh, sort of the neoliberalism has sort of helped to facilitate it, right? The neoliberal capitalism that's been on the rise has certainly facilitated the growth of Jeff Bezos. There's definitely a politics behind his rise and, and the rise of Amazon capitalism. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And what are some of the commonly expressed sort of explanations that you'll hear from, you know, the mainstream uh, or kind of business orientated explanations for Amazon's kind of rapid and continued growth these last, you know, 20, 25 years. And what would you highlight in your own analysis, perhaps instead as being uh, important contributing factors? Um, I mean, you've mentioned neoliberalism there, but if you want to expand on that a bit. You know, I I think, you know, one of the big myths, uh, certainly here in the United States, is that billionaires are somehow special people. Jeff Bezos has been described as being a brilliant mind, an innovator, a market disruptor. But what he shares with most billionaires is a disdain for workers. And, you know, Jeff Bezos's personal fortune soared to $200 billion during the height of the pandemic as a global death toll neared 1 million people. And what's less discussed is how hundreds of thousands of workers who move the goods that make shipping so-called free, who are paid poorly or treated poorly, are doing the work that allowed this one individual to amass the world's biggest fortune in world history. And so this is also, uh, I think, connected to racial justice and racial capitalism, that the predominant workforce, certainly here in the United States, uh, are predominantly workers of color, Black folks uh, and Latinx folks predominantly uh, make up the majority of uh, the workers here in Los Angeles. The majority of the, the last mile delivery drivers uh, as well are you know, over 90% people of color. So this strongly correlates to racial capitalism. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. You've already kind of mentioned something that I'll, I'll bring up in a bit, which is like last mile workers, because there's some interesting terms that get floated around in the book, which probably could do with some unpacking for people. But I guess just to rewind a little bit, because we're sort of touching now on the logistics side of things, you know, the question could be opposed, you know, what is Amazon? Uh, it was obviously founded in 94 as an online bookseller. So we might at one time have described it as a retailer, but is this categorization, you know, really accurate anymore? Or is this just kind of part of the picture? Because it's also this big, you know, tech company, and arguably, it's kind of a logistics company as well. I'd just be interested to hear a little bit more about, I guess, the logistics side of things. Um, how does Amazon fit into the wider context of the development of the logistics industry and like global supply chains uh, in the last 30 years? And what is it that Amazon does perhaps differently to other companies when it comes to logistics? 
Well, I think you're right. I mean, this is a very multifaceted example, right? Um, you know, and there's the sort of cloud data storage aspects. There's the sort of movie. It's a retail platform. But increasingly, it's also a logistics company, too, right? And um, I think, you know, it's it's really disrupting the delivery chains that have been sort of in place for many years. And, and I think Amazon is increasingly trying to circumvent union delivery drivers, right? And I think Jake could probably say much more about that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what we've seen in in the global economy has been, we've witnessed in the last 20 years or so, a rise in what we call retail power. Uh, Walmart became the world's largest corporation, and their model was by dominating logistics, right? Now, Amazon is moving what we call the supply chain. It's not ending at the brick and mortar store, it's instead our houses, right? So in order to move those goods, there's a whole new group of workers that Amazon has, you know, been building this infrastructure of this delivery network, and that these workers are predominantly non-union workers. Here in the United States, UPS, US Postal are two of the largest firms. But now for, for prime packages, Amazon now controls the delivery by employing subcontracted delivery service providers. And this is what we call the last mile. So e-commerce has essentially, you know, led to the growth of what's called last mile logistics. And that's getting all the goods to our doorstep. And it's had enormous consequences on the uh, wages in the sector. Um, It's led to what I argue is the racialization of labor of the delivery sector. And it's uh, undercut union wages and union density. Yeah, just to to build up some of those comments and just to think about the question of um, what kind of company Amazon is, because it straddles these different sectors and what implications it has for labor and political strategy. I just wanted to dive in a little bit more into um, the dynamic between Amazon's growth as a tech company, as a retail company, and as a logistics company. So if we go back to 1994, you know, when Bezos, as he testified before Congress, left his cushy hedge fund job on Wall Street and moved out west, he said from the get-go that he was going to build, quote, the everything store. And this was kind of an ambition to basically um, be able to increase sales inventory as much as they could. Um, so that they could then also increase their cash flow um, so that they could show their investors um, that it was a worthwhile company. Um, So even though he left finance behind, um, that was always kind of underlying part of the strategy. And in a way, it drove them to grow um, as quickly as they have in a way that has made it more difficult for workers to disrupt the flow of goods because they just have to keep hitting so many targets like a game of whack-a-mole and capital only has to focus on expansion in terms of money and physical resources and finding enough unemployed people that it can fill its warehouses with, whereas workers actually have to deal with all the challenges that come with organizing and aggregating their interests. So, you know, they're being outcompeted in terms of that whack-a-mole game, but because I think there is that undergirding of finance actually dictating some of what the company has done, it also makes it a bit precarious, uh, more vulnerable than we might think 
And I think that has implications both for our shop floor strategies and for our political strategies. And we can get into those later, but just to kind of close that loop um, so that people get a little more what I mean by finance shaping how Amazon was growing as a logistics company. So if you think about it, Amazon started selling books and it couldn't from the get-go outcompete companies like Borders or other entrenched competitors. Um, and so it had to increase to other product markets in order to increase its sales volume. And the way that it would be able to do that would be to amass this tech talent in Seattle that could help it um, design you know, this web infrastructure that would be able to get customers buying um, all sorts of things. Out of that is what emerged as the innovation of Amazon Web Services. And that's critical because when we talk about what the business press says about Amazon, you know, they basically usually refer to the retail logistics part of the company as um, kind of the laggard that's always um, hurting it in terms of profitability. And then it looks at Amazon Web Services and it says, look, it has 30% margins. This is, you know, really, really what the company has going for it. But now to get to the point of how finance kind of drives some of this and how the situation is a little more precarious than we think, it actually turns out that Amazon Web Services or AWS, um, which, you know, is what Netflix, for instance, runs on, didn't become profitable overnight. And um, it was a series of financial moves on the part of the company to basically make investors be patient enough to wait until AWS became profitable. And that, at that point, basically at around 2015, is when the company was able to get um, to the growth that it got. But that's all to say that, you know, what Jeff Bezos often tries to claim is this, you know, long-term strategy that was going to pay off in the end, um, you know, had definitely these moments of vulnerability. And I think it will continue to have moments of vulnerability. And, you know, as someone who is really focused on shop floor politics, you know, and organizing my workplace, what I think studying this company has taught me is that um, there are potentially other levers that we can look at. And even as a Marxist, I'm not a big fan of antitrust as a totalistic strategy. I just believe in democratic control of these companies run by workers for their communities. But I think actually there's an interesting conversation around all of that um, and that can be thought of politically, even in our circles on the left, as a way to pressure this company alongside workers, you know, like, like our comrades in Chicago. Thanks, Nantina. Um... I guess one of the the vulnerabilities which comes up in the book it's it's about how this model of you know Amazon's promise of ever faster delivery to consumers same day delivery within a few hours it comes with major negative consequences as far as the workers well-being is concerned but there is an irony there that this kind of really tight supply chain required for these kinds of delivery timeframes makes it vulnerable and gives workers, I guess, potential power to disrupt the logistics there. Jake, maybe you mentioned this in one of your chapters as well. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about why this potential vulnerability exists kind of built into Amazon's model of, you know, really fast fulfillment and so on? 
Yeah. So I, I think also Kim Moody's chapter talks a lot about, as does Nantina's, uh, the issue of time, right? So with e-commerce, time is even more important than it, even in the big box retail era. So as consumers get more and more impatient with packages that take over two days, that there's a consumer pressure there as well, right? But of course, what this has meant on a global scale of labor is what we call a, a worker speed up. And I, I wonder if Christian can can talk a little bit about that just on the worker end. How do you see this, Christian, in terms of impacting the labor process? Um, well, it definitely creates um, opportunity for, for disruption because Amazon management's focus is always got to get all the volume out, um, got to do things quicker. If you do things at this speed, uh, this day, do them uh, faster the next day um, and, and just continual, continual increase in speed. And so if we as workers are able to get more organized to the point where uh, where we can uh, go on strike over many of the issues that, that we encounter, um, it, it feels like we can really uh, make an impact here. The thing is, though, that there are so many Amazon delivery stations, fulfillment centers, sortation centers that it seems like uh, Amazon just uh, moves. You know, if there's disruption in one facility, they, they just move it to another, which is what we've learned from the example of the Polish and German Amazon workers. Uh, and so there's definitely potential to have strong uh, worker power, but um, the, the, the organizing needs to expand to many facilities. More worker solidarity, right? The more powerful right? The worker resistance is going to be, I think, you know, across geographies. But I think there's also like growing working class resistance too, beyond the workplace as well, especially in the communities where you have huge concentrations of warehouses, right? Then you have a lot of diesel pollution, right? From the trucks and coming in and idling, right? Sometimes near people's houses or their school yards and things like that. You know, so there's huge issues of of air pollution, right? And the environment that, you know, is also at stake here. Um, I think also we were talking about the surveillance technology and and certainly the workers are under this very heavy uh, electronic monitoring. That's enormous pressure. And I think Christian can maybe say more about this, but it's also, you know, this technology of this facial recognition software, right, that Amazon has created that is taken up by the police, by the immigration, the ICE, right? And, um, you know, and so the immigrant rights movement, right, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think there's all sorts of components, I think, to this growing resistance to, to Amazon capitalism. I think even small businesses, right? And India, right? There was huge protests by small businesses in uh, India, right? About Amazon taking over the markets, right? Um, so there's growing resistance from many different sectors, I think. Just to echo you there, Ellen, I'd be interested to hear uh, from Christian and, and Antina as well, like what does that typical Amazon fulfillment center warehouse workers day look like? Because a lot of people will probably have a picture in their head. You know, we all know about the surveillance technology, the speed up and everything. But yeah, it would just be interesting to to hear a bit more about the reality. So there's, a, I think, quite a distinction between the types of centers that exist. Um, I've only worked at a delivery station. And uh, from my understanding, delivery stations tend to be, I think, lower technology than fulfillment centers. Um, uh, definitely more of a mess. Um, this is what I've gathered just from from coworkers that have transferred from one type of facility to the other. But I mean, of course, there's there's surveillance on the gadgets that track your your every scan, you know, your login, 
they do these little surveys, which I, don't, I mean, for us, they're not too they're not too consequential or too important. Um, it's just an annoying thing that we that we got to get out of our way. Um, but definitely there are definitely ways that uh, that Amazon, you know, is even um, <laughs> rating managers on uh, how well they, they manage us, how happy they have us uh, or how angry. Of course, their their cameras all over the place. And they just started uh, bringing in new assistive uh Social distancing cameras or something that put little circles around your body um, as you as you pass by on the on the video screen to show that you're uh, not or that you are getting within six feet of another worker. I don't I don't think it really I don't think it really works very well, <laughs> but um, I guess they try. You know, one of the things that I was struck by. Uh, so I spent several months doing ethnographic and uh, qualitative uh, research on the delivery workers uh, here in Los Angeles. And, you know, so I, I would ride along, you know, inside um, the delivery vans and I uh, got to know a lot of the workers and, and in many ways uh, was kind of informally trained on the job. But what, what I was really struck by was kind of this three-pronged surveillance in particular for the delivery service providers. These are most of the subcontracted prime delivery workers uh, here in the United States, you know, their day starts, um, they'll pick up their keys for their van. And here in Los Angeles, one of the main delivery stations is in Los Angeles. And the worker also has to pick up a, an Android phone, and it's known as the rabbit. And the rabbit is what plots uh, that delivery worker's route that day. And so I would go on these routes and, uh, you know, on an average day, you know, we would deliver somewhere between 150 unique stops, uh, 200 packages on really busy weeks like Prime Week. Uh, these workers can deliver 300 packages in a day. But every movement is tracked on this rabbit device that Amazon provides. And so it wasn't just that the parent company, Amazon, who is not their former employers tracking these workers, but they're also being tracked by the trucking company that they work for. And then a third layer is that the consumers uh, who are prime members uh, here in Los Angeles can track the whereabouts of their prime package in many ways at any time. You can see on you know a map where your package is here in Long Beach or Los Angeles. Um, and so what that does, it creates an enormous pressure and stress. And in some of the observations I did, uh, I remember one worker in particular, we stopped one time um, for him to use the restroom at a public place. Uh, it's very dense here, tons of traffic. And um, the amount of um, pressure, if he gets behind, he gets a text by his boss. If he misses you know, a package or a package gets stolen, he doesn't take a picture of it. He gets reprimanded by the parent company who uh, complains to the trucking company. All this impacts the worker on the daily basis. And uh, it's, it's really intense. And I think you see that, that same sort of intense pressure to work fast in the warehouses too, you know, where workers uh, report that they don't have time to go to the bathroom. Right. And these very large facilities to get there and back and still make rate. Right. So they hold it where they're pissing right in the aisles. Right. As we've heard. Right. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways, too, that workers were reporting uh, that sometimes they don't feel like they have time to follow all the safety measures. Right. They cut corners in order to make the rate because they fear if they don't, they're going to lose their job. So there's all sorts of sort of. Uh, health and safety concerns, too, that come along with this pressure just to, to work fast, to work at a constant pace and, and so forth. 
Yeah, and I, I want to refer a little bit to how um, the physical toll of the work ends up combining with various types of mental tolls. It's hard to, to really say definitively, but it seems that um, they definitely reinforce each other. And I, I'm still trying to understand that the company is so evil enough that it's by design. But um, just to give you an example of what I mean, today, um, Reveal, uh, this you know, kind of investigative outlet, released this report based on documents that they were able to obtain and data showing that the introduction of robotics into the fulfillment centers, um, which, by the way, just to draw the distinction, the fulfillment centers is where the goods are stored and then picked and packed upon order, whereas the delivery stations is then where they're sorted for delivery. And, and so you can maybe see already that the fulfillment centers have more tasks that need to be done and also serve as sort of the arteries, which might be part of the motivation for introducing all types of machines to make the work more efficient and to also facilitate higher levels of labor control. But in any case, the report showed that the introduction of robotics, such as these Kiva robots people might be familiar with, that um, are used in the picking department, or basically, instead of walking around the aisles, workers are situated along the perimeter of this field, what it's called, and the shelves are put on top of the robots, and they bring the goods to, to the workers, so they're stationary, um, 10 to maybe 12 hours a day. And they're expected, in some cases, to be picking that um, every seven seconds after um, they, they do a new cycle of the repetition. And, and so that report shows that you know, it's increased uh, the injury rate quite a bit. And an interesting thing that it points to is that um, Amazon you know, has, has its own teams that are supposedly concerned with workers' health and safety. And um, you know, in 2018, the health and safety team said that they wanted to lower the injury rate by 20%, and the rates went up. So the year after, they said that they wanted to lower the injury rates by 5%, and the rates still went up. And I just want to, um, as somebody who was picking in one of these facilities, give you insight into um, how the mental mechanisms feed into what we see in the aggregate as um, the physical costs for workers. You know, when I went in, into um, the picking department, you know, I was kind of told what the expected rate was, and that's, you know, the units per hour you're expected to be picking. And, um, you know, I was initially given a target of 400 units an hour, and then, you know, I was kind of told by somebody who was supposedly more in the know that actually it's 360, you know, me, um, trying to test limits, like I could pick a little lower than that and didn't get much pushback. Um, but the thing that actually was consistent was the tap time, which is that repetition uh, between, you know, when you pick an order and then when you pick the next order of seven seconds. And so there was this disorienting aspect where you were kind of given this nebulous and arbitrary rate, but then you had actually the real number um, that you would discipline yourself according to. Um, and that, in fact, you know, those who would bring supplies to your stations who are often selected on their basis of being good kind of booster types for the company, um, and in fact asking people as they walked around their stations, what rate did you make? Um, and, and kind of creating a competitive culture in the warehouse that most of my coworkers didn't actually appreciate. 
um, but we were stationed and separated from each other, so we couldn't really talk about it with each other. In any case, having that setup created you know, the isolation physically, and then the competitiveness um, that, that then pushed people to work just, yeah, to, to the extreme. And that's different from the setup prior to the robotics, because there you were kind of given a, a countdown, right? You can't give a tap time if you're walking around an entire warehouse um, because, you know, items are in all these different places. So it can't be the standard seven every time. Um, so there you were being controlled more by the machine, which isn't great either. It's not that pre-robotics was headed. But um, with the introduction of robotics, I saw just, you know, with that little snapshot, a way in which then there was this kind of mental component that added to, to the atomization and then to just like the rote work and the drudgery that for me actually was the hardest thing to deal with in the fulfillment center. And I think, you know, just to bring it back to what Christian was saying, um, I think the atomization is a little less um, in the delivery stations, which is why perhaps it's also at this point until now been a bit easier for workers to organize, at least in the U.S., um, relative to the fulfillment centers. But I think, you know, it's been very inspiring to watch, you know, the rise of worker resistance within Amazon, you know, given these constraints, in part, maybe perhaps because of those <laughs> pressures, you know, that they're facing. And I, and I would love to hear more from Christian about the worker organizing that's been happening. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask, you know, how Amazonians United emerged and, and what were the issues that kind of drove that? It was, uh, I mean, so many uh, like years of uh, just angers and frustrations uh, being treated like children, disrespected, um, pressured, stressed, not being given accommodation when injured. Um, just so many things that basically we we found each other, uh, co-workers uh, at, at DCH1 just through conversation. And, you know, we were like, let's let's meet up and talk about this um, because it's too much. It just it just became it's just like too much bullshit. And so when we met up, the issue that that came up as as the one that that felt like we could do something about was was water um, because they weren't they weren't providing um, a regular access to clean uh, water. And sometimes there was there was no water. Um, and so uh, that just felt like the most basic thing that um, our coworkers, many of whom were, were scared um, or we thought might be scared to do something, because there is also this perception that Amazon is just everywhere, is really big, is really powerful, is listening to you and, and get rid of you um, or, or, or whatever. So we were like, yeah, we, we got to start with something, with something that people are willing to, to make a stand on or at least to put their name on a, on a piece of paper for. Um, and so that's what we did. It was just a little group of us. Uh, we just made a, a quick petition, nothing too crazy. Basically, just saying we need uh, regular and clean access to uh, to water, and uh, we got almost everybody on our uh, on our shift to sign it within a, within a couple or a few weeks. They asked me to turn it in, but many coworkers spoke up, and that, this was at the beginning of the shift where the manager was in the middle of everyone um, doing stretches in a big circle, um, and so he was just you know looking around, getting all. Uh, all flustered, um, not knowing what to do. Um, and that was, uh, I think that was the moment when DCH1 Amazonians United was was really created because we saw that, you know, even though we're uh, 
we're going up against richest man in, in the world, this huge, huge corporation. And, and we're just workers, you know, that we could actually make some sort of change. Um, it was then that we were that, that we met up afterwards and we were like, all right, well, um, we got one issue addressed and we got a long list of, uh, of other, of other things that, that need to get addressed too. So, uh, so maybe we should come up with a name for ourselves. And it was uh, it, it was after that that we uh, decided on 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 our next steps. And, and basically, we've just been taking steps together since then. There's a great list in the book of like other things, uh, other issues or struggles that you've kind of fought and, and won concessions around, like paid time off for part timers and some healthcare pay guarantees when warehouses were either like too hot to work in or where the lights failed and it would have been too dark. So, yeah, no, it was, a, it was great to hear about. Um, I think we continue to see, right, workers pushing back on, you know, their health and safety concerns, right, and getting some improvements. I mean, certainly there needs to be much more done, right, but they have continued to win, right, during this pandemic, right, some some improvements around health and safety, which have been a huge concern. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely we've talked about how like COVID has resulted in this massive upswing in Amazon's business and its profits and how it's kind of all the risk that's associated with this is being borne by, by the workers and, and the broader public as well, I guess. Is it true to say that COVID and the risks associated with like personal safety have been a bit of a flashpoint or a turning point in resistance to Amazon, whether that's from workers or from, you know, communities um, and how has that resistance been manifested in different campaigns that you know of or that you've taken part in? It definitely was a, a flashpoint, especially at the beginning of the of the pandemic, um, just because it was crazy. Like it just everything seemed crazy that that we would uh, be expected to continue to work, um, even though there are positive COVID-19 cases in our facility Um and um, of course, there are other ones that were what's it called asymptomatic um, and maybe spreading. And you know, we have coworkers that that are that are older, uh, and so a deep sense of of anger that that we were being put through these situation. Um, uh, also, uh, from many coworkers, um, I heard a deep sense of worry for their older coworkers, especially. And the anger manifested itself in the safety strikes that we uh, that we did in, in Chicago, um, which is like end of March, beginning of April. Um, we did four four of them together with our uh, with our demands, the biggest demands, which were um, to shut down the facility and to clean it up and to actually implement um, policies if, if it was going to remain open, where it was only you know shipping essential products and keeping us safe somehow. And I mean, there was the workers in uh, in New York City also took a very a strong action, as, as well as uh, workers in, uh, in in Europe that we saw. And I think that that led um, workers uh, at other locations that hadn't been organizing to you know start to reach out. We had a a, a big petition um, out um, uh, an, an international petition, and many people were signing it much more so than I think. Um, Amazon workers would have been willing to do before um, before the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic, and Amazon, of course, implemented policies to pacify us and also to to look good to the public. Of course, you know, to to a certain degree, you know, it, it gets some people to be a little bit more quiet. Um, but there's still a, a lot of anger and a lot of worry out there. I think that this uh, this was a, a big spark for for just the building of of worker organization across the United States at the very least. 
Yeah, I think you're right that, you know, Amazonians United is really spread in this period right? because of workers' real genuine concerns for their, their health and safety. And in addition to, you know, the protests, the strikes, you know, there's also been legal complaints in Southern California to Cal OSHA, right, as well, um, that are, you know, still underway, right? Um, and, you know, I think some of these complaints, you know, they're, they're specific to COVID, but some of them are longstanding complaints about health and safety, right? Under that pressure to constantly work quickly, then workers' health and safety, you know, the mental pressure, the stress, right? As well as the physical stress and, and injuries, right? That workers are vulnerable to when, when they're working so quickly and under such pressure, you know? And I think it also, you know, led to, to issues also of pregnancy discrimination too, against pregnant women, right? That uh, were seeking some accommodations in their, in their workplace, right? Some of these issues are COVID specific, but it's also longstanding concerns that workers have had. And I think, you know, many of the workers that have been very vocal around various concerns, especially around issues, too, about equity, have been women of color. Putting in legal complaints, um, being vocal uh, in the press and at protests as well, you know, around issues of, of racial discrimination, you know, pregnancy discrimination as well. And, and kind of on the flip side, so as workers in warehouses and in delivery vans were being forced to increase the pace of work during the pandemic. Of course, that's when we saw Jeff Bezos's personal wealth explode, you know, about $80 billion more. But, you know, even kind of locally here, like here in Southern California, I live about three miles from a, a very large shopping mall or about five kilometers or so. It's been shut down, you know, since uh, March or April completely shut down. At the same time, Amazon's competitors are folding, right? All around the world, retailers are folding. And, you know, I just read a report that uh, so many of American uh, uh, shopping malls in, in the United States, Amazon is in talks with, you know, taking over uh, some of the former retail space for Sears and Roebuck, uh, JCPenney, uh, to open small kind of delivery centers uh, within the shopping malls, right? Um, so we have to connect kind of the, see the dialectic there. So as Christian and his colleagues were not given water and safety protections, we're seeing extreme seizing of market share by this corporation, which has led to uh, an intense increase in corporate power, right? So it's Amazon is emerging uh, stronger than ever, and we see this as a uh, having global implications. That was Jake Alamohamed Wilson, Alan Reese, Christian Zamoron, and Nantina Vagonces on Radicals and Conversation. If you've enjoyed this discussion and want to keep listening, the unabridged version of this episode is available exclusively to our Patreon members. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press to find out more. We'll be back with another episode next month. So until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.